and welcome to Activating Sustainability, the Anthesis podcast. Well, I'm Chris Peterson, your host, and we hope you're all doing really well. The world's eyes have been on Glasgow and COP26, and to help understand kind of what happened on the ground, what that means for us going forward, and what as individuals within the sustainability community should be doing about that going forward. I'm joined today by Paul Crew who's our Chief Sustainability Officer for Anthesis, who is on the ground and in the mix at COP26, and Simran Batra, Principal Consultant with Anthesis, who is monitoring the developments and discussions virtually from London. So welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having us. So maybe to kick us off, I mean, what was the two weeks of global focus on COP26 and the world like for both of you? And maybe Paul, do you want to kick us off in terms of what was it like on the ground and in the meetings? Yeah, well, life on the ground was was fantastic from a personal perspective. You know, um, being in Scotland, in Glasgow, the Scottish weather was very fair for a change, which was great. From a personal point of view, what was interesting, it was the location of the venues to the centre meant that it was all walkable um, and the transport was great. And in overall a fantastic job was done through a COVID year, you know, in the plans and lead up. What it meant for me personally was uh, lots of blisters on my feet. I walked over 75 kilometers and I came back at the end of two weeks with a, a lost voice from talking so much. And, and, and it was fantastic to actually get to, to meet people face to face after this long period of time of living in a virtual world. And wow, that was, that was fantastic. Some key takeouts for me, I was, not, I was quite surprised that the, the things I was listening and, and reading from a media perspective didn't quite always match what was actually happening for me on the ground in those conversations. And, I, and so at times I felt that the, the media was sensationalised against the drumbeat of what I was listening to. And in, in my overall takeout was the real understanding that we don't need to know anything more about the science of climate change. You know, please stop researching and diving into more detail. And fundamentally, everybody, regardless of whether you're a country, a community, a city or a business, really needs to do stuff. In a real basic term, just get on and do stuff and do stuff quickly. And that was really palpable for me. You know, I came away on the, the Thursday afternoon, just really buzzing in, in my ears that there was a real passion and a need to want to do stuff. But that then brings a challenge in what do I do? How do I know that what I'm actually going to investing is gonna deliver the challenges that, you know, that the companies or the governments or the cities are setting themselves. And so there's a real need for that level of information, confirmation, trust to deliver. And it's really needing us in the wider world to make things happen. Yeah, I mean, considering I wasn't there, it was just so amazing to see, you know, all the commitments that were coming out. I mean, every day my inbox was just full with another newsletter, another announcement. If you turn on the news, it was all about COP26 at all times. And I think it was just really amazing to see how much stuff was happening and coming out. And I think the 
the real pressure is going to be afterwards. I mean, there's a great talk by Vanessa Nakati, the Ugandan youth activist, who was just saying, you know, governments, prove us wrong. Show us that you'll actually deliver on these pledges and actually deliver them. I think it's amazing that, you know, all the NDCs that came out, but the real next challenge is actually delivering on all of those promises. I think it's really interesting to kind of compare and contrast that experience on the ground. And as I said, Simran, like lots of really great kind of announcements that come out, but maybe the expectations of COP were so high, right? That, you know, I, I think there is a, a little bit of a sense of maybe not meeting those. So just, I'd be interested to hear from the two of you, like, you know, you both seem pretty bullish on, on the outcomes of it and be interested to hear kind of, you know, how you're balancing those two. Yeah, I, if I if I think you know, my my expectations were very high, I'm a, I'm I'm an eternal optimist, and and I I passionately believe that we've got the good in all of us to want to make positive change. So I had quite high expectations, and of course, you know, huge expectations that countries, governments, and organisations were going to really pull together and absolutely confirm a 1.5 degree C warming. But reality is, you know even with all the great rhetoric that's there. And if you think about the NDCs and the latest NDC trajectory, we're sitting at about 2.1 to 2.4, which is far better than the anticipated um, Paris Agreement. However, you know, the signs are there. And how do I feel? I feel that the world is hanging on by its fingertips to get to 1.5. You know, literally hanging on. Um, And I'm just hoping that over the next year and before we get to COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, that actually someone's going to grab our wrists and pull us up. So we're no longer teetering on our fingertips and we'll be edging closer from a confidence and a safety perspective um, to get to that target that we all need as a globe to attain and achieve. Yeah, and I think it's amazing that even the ask for COP27 is that governments need to come back and close that gap. And I think that's really powerful that even though we didn't hit 1.5, that all the indices added up to that, I think it still just shows that the momentum is going in the right way, that we are making drastic cuts, but it isn't enough. And there's been wide debates about whether COP has been successful or not successful. And ultimately, they didn't meet their objective of getting NDCs adding up to 1.5. But what I think it did do was show that the momentum is there, that the sound and noise from the public is not going away, that the demand from the media, from other companies and organizations, that the pressure is only building and ramping up for them. And I think that's really, really hopeful to know that while the targets may not be where we need them to be at the moment, that doesn't mean that pressure is about to die down and people are just putting their hands up and saying, okay, we're tired. We don't know what to do anymore. That actually the pressure's on for people to deliver now. It's funny. I, I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, interestingly, Greta Thunberg is 18 now, you know, and Paul, you talked about kind of somebody grabbing our wrists and pulling us out of that. Right. And it's not fair to put it all on her clearly from her statements. But that idea of like that generation coming to the fore in voting power, et cetera, right? Where it's kind of, you know, this need for us to take control of that, for business to say, we're going to drive this forward. We see that in the ESG community, et cetera. Just really interesting to see that kind of, it just struck me in those discussions, right? Of groups coming or those individuals in that demographic 
coming now to that position of power and that shift that we're starting to see. You even see it in interviews that people are more nervous to take questions from the youth mm. than they are even like the media or other kind of organizations because they're actually asking the fundamental questions of why haven't you done something? And it's really kind of getting to the crux that this isn't just a technical exercise anymore. And a lot of us that are in this space and who work on climate have been really looking at the technical aspects of this. But the youth are kind of coming in and being like, well, how is our society gonna look in eight years, in 20 years, in the future for them? And it's not just about climate change, but it's about the inequalities in our society that will need to shift for us to even implement the solutions we're even suggesting. And so they're really getting at the root causes of some of the issues that we're trying to grapple with and saying, no, this isn't a technical challenge anymore. This is a social and behavioral one that will need to start kind of coming through. And just to build on, build on that, you know, I had the privilege of meeting a number of, of youth groups at, at COP and also meeting an old friend of mine, um, from the Red Cross Youth um, at lunch, actually, and we were just having a conversation. What struck me is there is this huge passion and drive for change from the youth. You know, it's palpable. I can feel it. I can see it. My own children, there, you know, there is a real hunger. But what was also um, highlighted to me was, but around about twenty percent of youth, I believe it's too late. So there's twenty percent of the youth already feel that we're too late, the the time has passed and, you know, bluntly we've screwed up and and there's not opportunities. And that was quite saddening for me, you know, to listen to, because I really want everybody to, to feel that there is hope and to feel that things are taking place and moving forward and at a scale and at pace. And the more we can do to encourage organisations, cities, governments to, to listen to our youth, truly listen, because it, it's it's their future. We're laying foundation stones down for their future, you know, and, and so that's that's key. What I also heard, and Simon, I'd love to, to hear your views on this in a second, that the topic of conversation over the years has been primarily focused on the E of ESG, the environmental climate change. But what I heard in the conversations that I had the privilege of joining um, was where the S, the social aspect, had risen dramatically. It was really warming. I had a fuzzy glow to say, well, actually, that level of interest is there. It's real. And the questions that were being asked around you know, the investments that we're making in, in, in climate change matters, how do we quantify and how do we measure the real social impact of doing the right things? And and for me, that was very warming. It's close to our hearts in our thesis. Um, and it'll be great to hear your views, Simon, on, on, on the S. Yeah, and I think it's what's what is going to be the more topic of conversation over the next, you know, eight years as we hit 2030 is the... It's the social side that people are calling for changes in the systems that we operate in. You know, climate change is such a complex problem and it goes to why people feel like overwhelmed by it. And it's why haven't we been able to do more? And it's because it's not just a technical problem. It's because there's so many social aspects of it. It's still rooted in racism, gender inequality, issues around accessibility. You know, how do we actually tackle the other problems that it really is deeply connected with? I mean, there's a great 
you know, some analysis also of just like who's who's responsible for for all of this. And it's not women and children. It's not communities of, of marginalized communities, people in developing countries. You know, it's specific communities of wealthy people in the global north that have been consuming for so many years that need to now take responsibility. But then it's also that challenge of, you know, can the people and organizations that have caused a lot of these problems over the years, are they the ones that we're trusting to solve these problems? And the answer is no, like we don't want that. We need those rooms to be opening up to new voices, new perspectives, different um, people of color, women, to show that actually we need more holistic perspectives when we're creating these solutions, because otherwise we really risk of just kind of creating another society where people can pay for their solutions, they can pay to offset, they'll be able to pay and afford to be safe from the impacts of climate change. And we're actually going to start seeing now that rooms will need to be changed of who's talking. Yeah, no, it's amazing to think, like you said, Simran, the the added complexity, but the critical nature of that to this discussion, right? And so maybe I think people were really hoping that COP would be that pivot point that we tie all that together. And I think there were pieces of that. There was disappointment about, say, access for a number of different groups within that, but then some really powerful presentations from the Ugandan delegate, from uh, you know the Kenyan president speaking about how 1.5 is three degrees in Kenya, you know, and the disproportionate impacts. I'd be curious. You know, maybe beyond the headlines, what are the the key things that the two of you are taking away from COP? Like, did it did it change things? Did it you know? Are there things that you look at as like, yes, that's the the nugget that gives you some of the hope that you talked about, Paul, going forward? Yeah, I think for me, what I what I heard, you know, I was there and and I heard so many different organizations, um, including countries, really put in their stall out to move toward net zero carbon journey. That gave me, you know, a huge confidence. And I want to go back to what I said previously, you know, there is a real hunger for organizations to know what to do. You know, this action I spoke about previously, it needs to happen. And, you know, you know, in our thesis, we, we, we set many, many science-based targets for many organizations, but it's not just setting a target it's then translating that into real tangible actions and interventions that we need to do to affect a transformational change. And, and so there's a real passion and the desire to know what to do. What solutions can I implement now? How do we measure them? How quickly can I introduce them? But then that comes with a conundrum around, well, how do, how do I finance that? So the conversations and topics that I have the privilege of joining and listening around alternative finance mechanisms to help the acceleration of these interventions was very deeply rewarding because there are solutions to enable the mass acceleration of those interventions that we do need. Now, we just can't wait for the next forest to grow on its own. We need to help with interventions and solutions, both in digital and physical. And the important thing is there is finance mechanisms out there to help businesses to accelerate those journeys. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where 
where my excitement lies from and hope from COP is that you've just seen the momentum from the bottom up that, you know, not only are citizens asking for this, but, you know, over a thousand cities have declared, have joined their cities race to zero. Over a thousand companies have set a science-based target now. And, you know, that momentum from cities and companies is really just growing. And I think there's three things that all of them need to be focusing on essentially is, you know, setting that target and plan. If you don't have one yet, you need to get one very soon and start tracking progress on that. People will now want to know, have you been able to reduce your emissions? Have you been able to be on track? What have you done? Secondly, they're going to need to start figuring out their governance structures. You know, are they working differently to get the stuff done? Are they still working in silos? But have they, Or have they been able to kind of get other people on board? And lastly, what you're speaking about, Paul, um, shifting that finance. How do we actually get ensure that money is flowing to solutions? We can no longer be investing in fossil fuel intensive processes and industries. How do we make sure that every dollar is now going into climate solutions to make sure that this all gets funded and is financed and is not the pressure is not put on people who can't afford it? Yeah, I'll give you a brief example. Um, Anthesis and, and I personally are involved in a coalition and we're working um, on a project which is live, it's just real, so this is not hypothesis, where we're dedicated to help over 100 million farmers in, in India with their regenerative agricultural processes, but also quantifying and measuring the social impact of those investments that we're going to make together for the future. And it's extremely rewarding to see that finance is available to enable that level and that 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 scale of opportunity in uh, in India, and so much so that the coalition is now extending to Kenya. So watch this space. We're hoping that's going to grow, and we're going to have greater impacts around supporting regenerative agriculture in, in many other countries. Right. It's incredibly exciting, right? And Simran hitting on some of those things. So how do you bring this all together? Right. And I think it's it's interesting. And I'd be curious to hear from the two of you, your views on, you know, think about like the mom test for me. Right. I think all of us involved found pieces within COP of like, this is really important. The NDCs are reporting on an annual basis. There were really meaningful movements on methane. You know, Paul, a lot of the output that you took from you know the Springfield Capital work, et cetera, that gives that sense of like, yes, this was very meaningful and moving forward. But I know I talked to my mom, my friends outside of the industry, et cetera, and they're like, wow, that was a failure. So how should people be thinking about this or speaking about that within their organizations, you know, to convey the right message around that? Or how would you both approach that? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I mean, David Attenborough has only been positive of actually explaining the climate crisis to the average person, to our mom, to our dad, to our grandparents, to kind of explain why we need to do stuff. And I think the next step is for people to be seeing that change where they're living and working. They need to see now when they go into the grocery store that things look a little bit different. They need to see when they're driving actually they can no longer use their car in a bit of a different way. I mean, in London, the ULEZ is expanding now. And I think people are like, oh my gosh, what are these electric vehicles? I have to change. Okay, should I be taking the subway? Should I be taking the tube? What should I be doing? I mean, those types of changes, when they start impacting everyone's day to day, 
makes them start connecting things that they see on TV, on the news, with what they are living and doing and buying, and just makes it more tangible. And I think that's where the next step is. People should feel really empowered if they're working in this space in cities and companies and governments that they have the freedom to act now and to do stuff. And people want to see their lives changing a bit. They want to be challenged just a little bit and enough to know that things are changing and they need to be behaving differently and responding to that. I think the challenge will be is to making sure that, you know, it's affordable, it's accessible, that, you know, they're the right solutions. But I think in eight years time, we're not going to be judged on the mistakes that we made. We'll be judged whether if we did something or not. So I think it's fine if we make some mistakes along the way, if things aren't perfect, but if we don't do anything, if we don't even try, that is just such a failure and that we'll see that happen in the next few years that people want to see what's happening on the ground now. Yeah. And, and from, from my perspective, when I think about where we have opportunities, we have opportunities to, to accelerate things by not platinum plating or diamond plating solutions. And I mentioned earlier about action. I generally believe that from the conversations that I listened to and, and participated in, there is this hunger for things to move at an accelerated pace. But we have to be cognizant of the fact not to make this so perfect that we delay an outcome. Yeah, and quite often there is a, an inbuilt inherent need to make things perfect. We're not in a perfect world. So we need to make sure we don't end up trying to create perfect processes or interventions and have faith and trust and and get doing stuff. We, we have the privilege in our thesis to work with some of the most important organizations on the planet around different sectors, you know, um, from retail, manufacturing and producing, um, as an example. And the conversations that we're having, they're all genuinely trying to move the dial yeah some are moving them quicker than others but there is this real inherent want and desire to make those changes to enable you know the communities the countries um that they operate in and operate out of to to be the best they can be and protect their futures of of not only their customers but their own colleagues themselves that work within the organizations. So I'm pretty upbeat. Um, and I, you know, I look to everybody to play their part. And some of those parts, as, a, as Simran was mentioned earlier, can be my, my wife, my daughter, making those choices through to the big business leaders and decision makers that have the, you know, the power to accelerate at scale and at speed. Yeah. And I think, especially for companies and organizations, I think the time is now to like be open and honest with what they've tried, why it didn't work, you know, what was really successful, what projects have they done, but being really open and collaborative and realizing that we can't no longer 
gatekeep some of those secrets about, you know, how did you get that policy through? How did you get the financing for that? That actually those kind of lessons learned really need to start being shared now by different organizations because like you said, Paul, we need to actually accelerate this pace of action now. And that can only be done if people are really open and transparent about how they've been able to achieve what they have been or why they haven't been able to. What are the stoppers out there and making sure that they're collaborating with different types of organizations. You know, cities can't be doing this alone. Companies can't be doing this alone. Governments can't do this on their own. They all need to actually be working together and leveraging the powers and capabilities that they have individually as organizations to help create a better solution and create solutions together that will actually create some innovation, finance, and things on the ground that people can see and live and touch and work differently. Yeah, and maybe just picking up on that, one thing that struck me with COP and some of the debriefing afterwards is that sense of, it reminds me of the Churchill quote, right, where democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others, right? Like, and it's amazing. Everyone's wants to get caught with the like, COP is the only forum that we're trying to develop a global regulation for, right? And that just doesn't exist anywhere else. And so it's inherent with lots of challenges, but this is the messy getting everything on the table and showing the cards and being transparent and showing our NDCs and trying to figure out what this looks like. And so it's, it was never going to be perfect. And I think embracing that sense of like, oh, yeah, there is conflict, but it's amazing to see what has been accomplished. Definitely. And I think people shouldn't be shy of like showing the failures. I think they should be shy of showing of no action has been taken. Yeah. Versus shy of they've tried and it didn't work. That's okay. So maybe carrying that forward, I'd love to hear just as we're wrapping up, like what should people do Monday morning? Like what's next? What's the next immediate kind of action you would recommend for kind of people looking to embrace and address this? I think for me is for you an organization, then start to really understand your trajectory. So it, it goes back to the old adage, you need to understand the baseline to enable to move forward or backwards. Um, but you need to truly understand. So you need to take that plunge. And so if you haven't yet thought about what a net zero carbon journey looks like, start the journey. You know, it's like riding a bike. It always looks very scary when you get that wobble. But the minute you start gathering momentum, it gets much easier and you go quicker and faster. And so I'd really advocate, please start to, to look at your own operations. And if you haven't set a target, start to understand a little bit more about what that means. And for me, when you start that journey, it's thinking about the net zero carbon journey itself, but also the social aspects and the benefits and the opportunities that doing a program activity can bring from a social perspective. And um, you know, those, those two are very important to, to bring, bring together. As I said previously, the, the E of the S and G has always been so large that now it's great to see the S equally as important. Yeah, and I think even to keep going with the ESG, that G and the governance is also just like so important. That leadership, the way we're structured in organizations. I think on Monday morning, if people were kind of going into their office and thinking what they could do, they need to start thinking about how do they pitch just a sustainable, healthy, fair future within the way that they work? And how do you think about this, not just within a climate lens, but in the way that your operations, your business should be benefiting the environment, people around you, and how can you govern all of that to be a better 
better place for people to live and work? And how can you provide that solution? So I think people need to start thinking a bit more with an open mind, with a larger sense about how are they going to track their progress. Like Paul says, you need to have a plan and an action and a target. That's the basics. The next is actually working differently and financing this transition. And for people to start working and focusing on that element of it, getting your target and plan is actually the easy part and getting it done requires that SNG angle and it's really challenging. So just know that you're not alone <laughs> trying to solve any of these problems either, that there's so many great people, organizations willing to help, willing to share thoughts um, and to reach out for assistance. Well, wonderful. Maybe that's a great spot to stop. So much that I'd love to unpack further with you all. And I imagine there'll be a number of conversations going forward, but you know that safe, sustainable and healthy future. Uh, and then Paul, your comments about action, 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 right? Being so critical right now. So thank you both so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you all very much for listening. We really appreciate it. And you know, we'll list all the references and resources, a couple of links on the website to our net zero page to help you get started on that. You know, we've got a COP26 page that has all of the resources. Definitely encourage you to check that out. Um, and then as mentioned, you know, Anthesis has really been structured to kind of help people to jump that gap between kind of ambition and intent and actually getting it done. So, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to any of us. We're all available by email also in the description and love your feedback and hope everybody stays well. And we'll talk to y'all soon.